0: plushcare.com slash weight loss
1: this podcast is a royfield brown production find others on
2: itunes in
0: an uncertain world there is always music which can be listened to in good company Welcome to Friday 15, the show where we speak to friends and interesting people to the backdrop of great tunes and allocate 15 minutes to both. Today we speak to Claire Asprey, the External Affairs Manager at the National Housing Federation about the UK's housing crisis. album Emerge, Parks on Fire blends Cinema Noir and Drum and Bass. Released in February 2008, it was written, programmed and mixed by Trifonic. Why is there a housing crisis in the UK?
3: Because we haven't built enough homes for about 30 years, although obviously the housing market is an incredibly complicated beast and so there are a whole host of factors such as land supply, uh, finance and mortgage availability uh, different types of housing markets in different parts of the country and so on so there are places where it's not so much a lack of housing but the wrong kinds of homes and there are other places where there is a huge acute shortage of housing at all and especially uh, the affordable housing that you know that's genuinely accessible to people so uh, it's a multifaceted faceted problem uh, but ultimately Uh, you can bring it down to supply and demand in the sense that we have not kept pace with population growth for decades.
0: All right, so if home ownership has fallen for the first time since census records began, wouldn't that, you'd think, create enough of a prod for any government to build more houses? Why are we still not doing it if we know there is statistical evidence that there is... As it via uh, shortage of homes
3: well i would give some credit to the government for the housing white paper which came out uh, last week or week before where they are genuinely looking at all different ways of delivering more homes and actually have set a target which the previous you know, coalition government really resisted doing for uh, an ever such a long time one of the good ways of you know saying we've got a housing crisis we want to do something about it is to say and therefore we will build x number of homes will we make sure that those homes get built um and for a long time there wasn't a lot of enthusiasm for setting targets and now they're is one it's a very ambitious target which is good i guess um but it's going to take a huge amount of a combined effort to get to the sort of million homes that they're looking to achieve um and that means that you need to build homes for people to buy but also other other kinds of housing for people to rent and a really important aspect of that at the moment is that um in order to get more homes built quickly what you need is things that the market can absorb um and there's only so much home ownership that the market can absorb and you know the big developers know that that's why they don't build them very very quickly they build them as fast as they can sell them but if you had a very substantial program of house building for uh, people to rent those homes which is what the government's looking to achieve then the, the the rate at which you can build them and fill them it goes up a lot because people are not waiting for a mortgage in order to, to be part of that process. So are you um, saying
0: that we need to build more new houses, but for the rental market?
3: Yeah, I mean I think that's how you're going to get lots more homes built quicker because there's only so many homes that the mortgage market is going to support. Particularly at the prices in the places where the homes are most needed, it's, it's an incredibly difficult thing for people to get um, on the market, on onto the housing either there, uh, because the prices are very high and the requirements of deposits are very high. There has been a lot of interest for a number of years now in getting, you know, institutional investment into rented housing, and there's been some work done. Now, I mean, I I spend most of my working life with housing associations, and they've been working for you know hundreds of years to provide a whole range of affordable housing and predominantly housing for rent over that time and you know they've got a huge ambition to meet the needs for affordable rented homes but also uh, you know other kinds of rented homes and they're building homes for sale they're pretty much operating at all parts of the market now so that they can generate the income in order to fund the kinds of affordable housing that the government's not really funding anymore but we are for bulk uh, delivery of lots of homes we are quite over reliant on a small number of big development companies who can only have so much capacity so that's one of the things that government's been looking at in the white paper is helping more small building companies to fill parts of the market that other people won't supporting homes for rent build for rent and that kind of thing but you know there's there's no single answer to the problem and and in terms of getting more homes built there's also no single answer to that it's about a whole host of different aspects across delivery planning funding etc it's not an easy one to fix and it takes time
0: all right so let's look at specifically the areas in the uk where there is the most acute shortage of homes where where's the worst
3: well, obviously, London gets the focus for because I mean it is a, just a very different housing market. I mean, I work across the east of England, and uh, prices in Cambridge are comparable to parts of London. Uh, Oxford and Cambridge come up pretty high in terms of uh, affordability problems, so that the you know the ratio of incomes to house prices, in particular, is is you know particularly bad i think oxford is actually the least affordable part of the country if you look at um local incomes to house prices so basically across the 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 southeast generally uh okay let's,
0: let's just look at oxford as an example so if it's the least affordable city tell us some of the kind of practical ways of how that plays itself out on the ground so
3: there's obviously huge competition for all kinds of housing you've got the uh, added complications of all benefits of course of the of the university and Oxford is also um, quite tightly bounded by floodplains and Greenbelt which doesn't help so you know there are there are a whole host of uh, pressures about how to grow that city in, in a way that's sustainable there is some really good development going on Nearby, so you look at Bicester, for example. There's a huge amount of growth there, um, where they're building a new town and they're, you know, doing huge amount of expansion because there's a huge need in that general sort of area. Uh, and that's true of Cambridge actually as well. The way it plays out on the ground is genuinely people struggling to find anywhere to live that's half decent, and uh, and then people uh, into much more situations of housing stress. More overcrowding, more issues around homelessness. These are the things that we see in the places where there are, you know, most problems with affordability. But also, the dynamics of cities as well, where people come to cities looking for um, employment. You know, some of the places that are most able to find employment, you're least able to find housing. And there's a reason for that. You know, the, the places that have the least amount of home, the least amount of jobs, are also the ones in which you know homes are surprisingly cheap. Because that's how the uh, that's how the market
0: works. All right. So before we come back onto how the market used to work, you need to tell me about the piece of music which you picked, which is a gentleman which I knew absolutely nothing about. So props to you for stretching me and making me go onto Wikipedia and actually reading what was in front of me. A gentleman's called uh, Cameron, but can you tell me about the piece of music and why it moves you?
3: Okay, so I didn't know what to pick with this music, and I wanted something that was, yeah, that would genuinely move me. And actually, move me is exactly the right term for this. Um, so this is by the Bahia de, Bahia de Cadiz, um Bahia de Cadiz, uh by Cameron. Cameron was like the big flamenco superstar, um, lived fast, died young, um, you know, hero to many. Um, And what I really love about this is that if I was going to pick flamenco, which I wanted to do because it's an important part of my life, um, I wanted to pick an alegria, which is my favourite style of flamenco. Alegria, it means joy, so it's upbeat. It's one of the few flamenco styles that's done in a major key. And it has a sway to it, It comes from callus. So most of the lyrics deal with people who are... Going to see, um, but what I like about this one in particular is that as a dancer, it packs into three minutes all of the elements you might get in a full-length allegria for dancing, which can be you know ten or fifteen minutes long with all these different aspects. And it's just got a real kind of energy about it because what I really like is there's a there's a, there's a part called the silencio where it sort of goes a little bit sad and slower, and then it sort of pounds out of that with a lot of gusto. Uh, and then the part at the very end as well where um you know it accelerates to a sort of finale i just love it because it's so um it's like an edited highlights so uh, that's that's what we like and I, I i've choreographed to this piece of music mm-hmm.
2: Para mí, que se seque la sabina, ay, mientras yo te tenga a ti.
0: I mean you choreographed to it i thought you i thought you were big into housing what what else are you, what are the tricks you have up your sleeve
3: yeah i was uh, i'm a flamenco dancer on the side well not so much these days i haven't danced for a while but um i lived in spain for a couple of years because of the flamenco i wanted to i i studied in the uk and i wanted to get better so i went to spain uh for a couple of years and then when i've come back i've, I've taught off and on flamenco uh, for a number of years until my class sort of dwindled down a few years ago and I, I i gave it up it's something that i enjoy and one day would like to do again
0: well you know what you've reminded me is that on next week's show I'm going to, have to play a little bit of jose gonzalez love him great stuff um what can we learn from the spanish in terms of how they go about organizing their cities and their ho- and their and their housing market
3: Oh, good question. Uh, Actually, Spain's one of the places that was a few places in Europe that had a higher level of owner occupation than the UK. Um,
0: Higher? I was was just presume that we had the highest.
3: No, we have the most obsession with it, I think. It's a very, very strong British thing about having your own home, you know, Englishman's home in his castle and all that. Um, uh, But actually, there are areas of uh, Europe which historically had higher... Levels of owner occupation and Spain was one of them. In fact, these days, actually, a lot of the Eastern Europe, European countries, I think, do have as well. Mm-hmm. And of course, in the UK, the owner occupation rate is falling. But um, the the main difference that I, I would say, you know, my experience is in, in southern Spain, but um, I think one of the fundamental differences in terms of how people live would be that you can do much more of it outdoors in Spain. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Realistically, than you can in the UK. So, some of the things that people do in terms of you know social life spent outdoors, um, you know the way that communities work, um, it isn't very easy to transplant in the UK unless you're willing to forego the fact that it rains quite a lot and isn't very warm. So, it's not very appropriate for people to necessarily replicate that. Yeah. So, but I, I, as I say, I went to Spain. To, to dance, not to study housing stuff too much. And so I, I can't say that I've got a very um, working knowledge of exactly how they might organise their planning system there compared to what we do here.
0: But we know that the a crisis that we have in the UK doesn't just mean that families cannot afford homes anymore because you know seven times the multiple of your income is supposed to be what you should be paying paying for a house and it's gone beyond that reach definitely in London it's kind of nine times and plus but also uh, at the other end is that we now have um the levels of homelessness homeless households which has risen to more than 50,000 a year um Surely, if we have this obsession with homes and we have an obsession with owning our own homes and we have um, at least a party in power that believes in a property-owning democracy, um, I would have thought that would have been quicker to react to, to this problem. Why is it that there has been this lethargy, not just with, with the Tory party, the present government, but this lethargy for the last 30 years actually to tackle this issue?
3: Um well, I think one of the things that we've got to bear in mind is that the the country's never built the kind of numbers of housing that we need now, except in the sort of late sixties and seventies when um there were very, very substantial council health building programs um so the private sector's never delivered. Um, anything like uh, the numbers? I mean, we we, we need about half of, uh, we need to build a quarter of a million homes a year, two hundred and fifty thousand homes a year. We're doing something around, well, maybe just over half that at the moment. Um, but there's been times when it's been lower again. So. The question is, do we have enough political impetus to put a huge amount of public money into public housing? And I guess the answer to that is not so much across a whole host of uh, political. But I thought, but can't we fudge that
0: by by giving it to you guys, to the housing associations? Because if you say to people social housing, yes, we think of council blocks and we go ugh council estates. But if you go housing associations, everybody loves a housing association, don't they?
3: Oh, that's that's lovely to hear. So it's part of my job done. Well, yes, but you still have to subsidise it. Um, You know, if you're going to have subsidised housing, you need subsidy. The, The challenge is getting the subsidy to work in an environment where, you know, the government's very tight for money. And I suppose the other thing to bear in mind at the moment, particularly in terms of homelessness, is the changes that have happened in the... Uh, welfare support system so the way that benefits have been capped and also frozen over a period of time I mean the reality is that you know a quarter of people who are getting housing benefit are working households it's people who who are earning money but they don't earn enough to keep up with the rent and they're getting a bit of support from the government but it's sort of you know there are a, quite a number of places in which there just isn't anywhere for rent that's within the range that the, the housing benefit will pay for um Cambridge is one of those but you know i think there are other places uh, as well so you know that you even when you're working you can't afford to rent a place um if you're not working it's incredibly hard again the the only way around that is very very low price rented accommodation and there is a huge demand for that and not enough of it available um, and in fact less of it becoming available because people are not tending to move on so much at the moment and we've certainly seen that the number of uh, homes coming available for reletting, for example is falling so that's a very tight squeeze and at the people who are the most Um, difficult points and um, trying to find a decent place to live are competing for very very scarce resource and that's what housing first are trying to deliver more of but obviously the, the, it's, it's about finding ways of funding that and ultimately at the moment they're trying to fund that through not just government support but actually creating income of their own through developing other homes for sale and so on the, and doing other things that generate money because ultimately they've got a history out of philanthropic organisations that have made money and invested it in low cost housing and that's what they're continuing to do
0: Klaus thank you for coming on to Friday Fifteen. Not only for telling us uh, about the government white paper, which hopefully is going to help uh, the UK's acute housing crisis, but also um, dipping the Friday Fifteen toe into the world of flamenco music. Thank you. Simple. Look at you. Look, I'm not cool enough to come on your podcast. Carded wallop. You, know, you can talk for but for England, you well, at least for East England. about apartheid in South Africa. It was one of the group's biggest commercial hits, speaking at number 11 in the UK charts. Visionaire's The World Is Yours features a large sample from hip-hop great Nas's similarly entitled Track The World Is Yours back in 1994. It is one of the best examples of jazz hip-hop to date. Don't forget, you can follow the show's progress on Facebook by simply typing in Friday 15. You can also find us on Twitter, where you can follow me, where I'm at Royfield, spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D, now, every Thursday, you can jump onto Twitter and tweet me and nominate a song for me to put into this week's Friday 15. iTunes reviews, folks, are extremely important. They're the lifeblood of any podcast. Please go onto iTunes and write us a, a glowing review. And don't forget, finally, you can email me Well, i Royfield, spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D, at gmail.com. See you all again in seven days' time for more good music